This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. One of the clearest proofs of the inspiration of the Bible is its realism. The Scripture tells us like it is. It does not paint a romantic picture, a storybook ending of God's people living in near perfection and obedience on this earth. But it tells us of sin and grace, of our failure and God's faithfulness, of repentance and pardon, and ultimately of the faithfulness of God. And so it is with the book of Nehemiah. We might have thought that the book of Nehemiah, as we come to chapter 13 today, would be brought to a more cheering end. In chapter 12 we have seen the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah and the priests and the rulers and the people have divided themselves into two groups on the walls, with the temple and the city down beneath them, and they have joined together in unison to sing psalms of praise. The trumpets have blasted the note of victory and triumph. And we read in chapter 12, verse 43, The joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. What a wonderful way to bring the book to a conclusion. But no, chapter 13 follows. And chapter 13 will not leave us a misleading impression of Judah's spiritual life. It will tell us of sin of neglect, of lust, of foolishness. It will tell us of God's faithfulness and God's commitment to his people. We will read in this chapter, chapter 13, that the people of God in the days of Nehemiah were well nigh destroyed by world conformity, by neglect of God's house, by setting aside the Sabbath day, by treating marriage with impunity and impurity. And how applicable that is to us, says the Church of Jesus Christ. Always, always the Church must be on guard. Always the Church must bring the truth of the Scriptures. Always the Church is in need of men of God. Men of God to lead the Church, to be faithful to the Word of God. The distressing thing that we're going to see in chapter 13 is that the sins that are committed, and which Nehemiah corrects, are all sins that they had vowed they would not commit. You will recall a few weeks ago that we looked at the renewal of the covenant as they renewed the covenant in chapter 10. It was a spiritual high watermark. The people of God had come under the power of God's word, and they had signed their names. They had vowed that they would do the following things. One, separate themselves from the people of the land. Two, not forsake the house of God. Three, not buy on the Sabbath day. Four, not give their daughters to heathen men as wives. Now, in chapter 13, we will find that each one of these things that they vowed not to do, they in reality commit. And so I say again, always, always, the people of God need the word of God, need true teaching and preaching of the Word of God need biblical leadership in the church and in the home. They need pastors, elders, deacons, men of God who are sold out to the Scriptures. We're also going to see in chapter 13 that there was a period of time that Nehemiah left 
to return to the king of Persia, when his influence was taken away from the people of Judah, the standards immediately began to fall down. We need, as the church of God, always to be faithful to the word of God. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, we learn of the call of God to a separate life. It was on the day of the celebration of the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem that there was a public reading of God's word, and in that public reading of God's word, the people heard the requirement that the Ammonite and the Moabite might not come into the congregation of the Lord. Verse 1. On that day, the day of dedication, they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. Note, if only briefly, the powerful benefit of reading God's word in the public worship service. There is a special dimension of the power of Scripture felt and present when it is read in the worship service of the church. Never, ever underestimate it. It's not a time for daydreaming. It's not a time to stare out the window. It's the time for you to open as the Scriptures are read by the pastor. Because the Holy Spirit, as the people are gathered in worship, comes in a powerful way to honor the very word that he has given and inspired. In the congregational reading, the word of God comes in a special, powerful way to pierce, to lay bare the heart, to perhaps show us the evil that we have allowed to come into our lives, to comfort us. They read on the day of the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem from Deuteronomy chapter 23, 3-6, where there was a prohibition of the Ammonite and Moabite of entering into the congregation grounded in the evil that those two nations had done against Israel. Both had tried to prevent Israel from entering into the land of Canaan. It had happened when Moses led the people of God through the lands on the east side of the Jordan. The Ammonites, we read, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and water. The Ammonites had committed a sin of omission, of calloused indifference to God's people. Israel was exhausted. They had asked the Ammonites to buy necessities in their markets. They had promised to stay on the highways and not forage or plunder the vineyards or the wells. They would not go through the nation of Ammon, as Sherman had marched through Georgia. But they would keep themselves respectful. They had asked for a few things, but they were denied. Cruelty toward the people of God was exercised. They were told, you may not pass through. And Ammon came out to fight Israel. Then the Moabites, of them we read in Numbers chapter 22, that they hired Balaam, that Balaam should curse them. Balak, the king of Moab, had hired a wicked prophet Balaam to curse the people of Israel. Three times he had attempted to do that, and each time his blessings had been turned into curse. Moab had wanted to call a curse down from heaven on God's people. Moab had plotted and schemed to destroy Israel. Now the requirement was that the Moabite and the Ammonite should not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. And the idea is that they could not enter as an Ammonite, as a Moabite, as one who was given unto the service of those of the gods of those nations. 
It was not a racial, it was not a national prohibition, but these were the ones who were worshipping other gods. These were the people who had done their utmost to destroy Israel. And therefore the prohibition was that they were to be separate. Israel to be, was to be separate from them. What is God's requirement of us? Well, the requirement of the scriptures is this, that we as Christians live spiritually separated, a spiritually separated life from the sin of this world and that we do so because we are the friends of the living God. That spiritual separation is defined not in the Bible first as physical, and not fulfilled first in a physical separation, but it is a spiritual one. Yes, there are physical aspects to the holy separate life. Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. There are places, as a Christian, we may not go. Bars, parties, drunkenness, fornication, various places perhaps on the internet. Always we must ask as a child of God, would I want the Lord to return and find me in this place? There are people we may not make our friends, the profane, the vile, those who live their life in profanity against God. But I say again, the prohibition for us is not physical separation, not that we leave the world, not that we put up walls and think that by separating ourselves simply in a physical way from the world that therefore we live a holy life, we must not forget that we carry the world of sin within our hearts. The Word of God tells us that we are in the world, but we must not be of the world. We must be of Jesus Christ. The world, apart from Jesus, lives their life out of its principle. That principle is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. 1 John chapter 2 By the grace of God alone we who know Jesus Christ, now live our life out of a different principle, the love of God, the seeking of the things that are above. Physically, we are in this world. We go to our jobs. We live in our neighborhoods. We go about our business. We live within the world. But we are called to live a holy life in this world, separate from sin. Do we welcome the Ammonite and the Moabite into our life, into our heart, into our thoughts? Do we welcome into our heart those things which God hates? Look at your heart. Look at your inward life. What do you allow within your heart? Cruel indifference toward your fellow saint, even as the Ammonite toward Israel? Envy and jealousy, plotting to bring them down and to ruin their reputation, as the Moabite? Do we allow into our heart covetousness, greed for the things of this life, an insatiable thirst for all the things that the world considers so important? Do we let the lust of the flesh, pornography, fornication, cursing and swearing into your life, into your heart, under your breath? You cannot, as a child of God in Christ, peacefully coexist 
with any known sin within your heart. You must unceasingly fight it, or you will be conformed to it. We must remain separate from the world of sin, the world of temptation. One of the blessings of daily communion with God is that He will show you those things that are temptation to you, that draw you away from His face. What are those things in your life? Do you analyze them? Do you seek to find those things to which you are most susceptible, those sins that tempt you the most? Then we are called to remove ourselves from those paths of temptation. It might be a magazine. It may be visual for you. It may be certain talk Talk that gets us started, and before you know it, once we're started, we go on and on and say all kinds of things that are hurtful and shameful. It may be times when we're feeling sorry sorry for ourselves. Do you know those things that tempt you? Do you remove yourself from those things? We must be separate. Separate also from the sinful things and sinful entertainments of this world. We are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, Ephesians 5.11, but rather we are to reprove them. That word reprove means to convince them of their sin by means of clear argument from the word of God. Why? Why did God call his people in Nehemiah's day and us in Jesus Christ to this separate holy life? A number of reasons. Because the world of sin seeks our destruction. The world apart from grace seeks the destruction of the church. The world is not neutral. It can put on a kind face. It can put on a tolerant smile. It can apparently make itself to be indifferent. But underneath, the world of sin hates the cause of God because it is ruled by the prince of darkness and it will not stop at anything less than spiritual genocide of the people of God. The Ammonite and the Moabite reacted against Israel as they would react against no other nation. Any other people of the world, they might have said to them, well, of course, of course you can come through. We'll help you. We want to prosper you on your journey, on your noble quest. But when the children of Israel asked, Ammon had no human kindness, no flow of sympathy for beleaguered travelers. Their word was, get out and don't pass, and we will come out against you. The Moabites did not exercise religious tolerance. The Moabites did not say as Israel appeared on their borders, we should talk about pluriformity. No. They were against them. Why? Because God was in Israel. Because Christ was promised to Israel. And apart from grace, man and the world of sin stands in enmity against God and His Son. We read in Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the seed of the woman, between the church and the devil. We read in Romans 8, verse 7, The carnal mind is enmity against God. We read in John 15, these words of Jesus, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. We read in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, All who will live godly shall suffer persecution. Sin is hatred of God. 
If you are in the world, that is, you have not been made to know your sin and live yet in love of your own way of sin, then you will hate God. Because that's what sin is. It's hatred of God. There's no truce there. There's no coalition. There's no ceasefire. And therefore, when the church and the child of God flies the flag of God, of love for God, obedience to God, when the church lifts high the cross as the only way of salvation, only in Christ and no other way, then the church comes under the hatred of the world. The fangs of the devil, the hatred of the world is unleashed against the church. Perhaps now the world and the devil uses the word means of seduction. The attempt to get the church to compromise. But that will not last. The world of sin is intolerant of the church. Why? Because the world of sin is the enemy of God. We read again, Romans 8, verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God. You see, salvation is a matter of spiritual conquest. It's when God has come to subdue your heart, to take you away from the realm of darkness and hatred of God, and to bring you on bended knee to love God and to obey Him. But that will bring reaction. It will bring hatred of those who yet walk in the way of darkness, intolerance against you, against the God that you confess. But there is another reason, another reason why Israel and why we are called to spiritual separation, and that's because of the friendship of God. Separation from sin and sinful living is not only a flight away from something, but it is a pursuit of someone. A wholly separate life is the pursuit of godliness and of God. Only God can make a Christian. Man can make the outward. We can say, don't, don't, don't do this, stay away from that, don't go there, dress this way, go to church. But that is not the heart of Christian living. It is not, first, the outward. Why does the Christian desire to do those things? There's one answer. Because I love God, and I enjoy being with Him and in His company. Do you understand that? Separation from sin is only serving a purpose. That purpose is the desire to be devoted more and more to God. Is that why you want to live a godly, different life? Is that why you want to keep the Lord's Day? Is that why you go to church? Is that why you flee fornication and you love purity? Is that why? Not because, well, I have to, but because you want to. Because you understand that the embrace of sin means that you cannot know experientially the embrace of your Heavenly Father. Is that why temptation and materialism and all the other sins are resisted in your heart and in your life because you have come to love and to honor God. You see, this is all rooted in the love of God as God. For God's sake, for Him, the Christian lives. God creates this separation when His grace shows us who He is, that He has loved us and forgiven us in Jesus Christ and purchased us to be His own in the blood of His Son. You who love the Lord... 
hate sin, for he is just and pure. For Christ the King forsake the world in every former friend. The separate Christian life is a dedicated Christian life to God, godliness, and Christ. Separation from the world doesn't mean merely that we're some kind of cult, that we're ruled by some external form, but it means that our hearts are married to God. We love Him and seek His honor and His glory. That's why we love the church. That's why we love God's house. That's why we love our families. That's why we love God. That's why we want to be faithful to God. Underneath the Christian life is the only loving principle in this world. The only solid, good truth in this world. God. Because God is glorious. Because God is right. Because God is life. Because God is truth. We, therefore, want His smile upon us. And for that smile of God and embrace of God, we are ready to endure the reproach of this world. We read of Moses in Hebrews 11, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Why? Because he had respect unto the recompense of the reward, because he saw God. Let's apply then today this word of God to our lives. Let's ask God for his grace that we live a spiritually separate life from temptation and from the world of sin, a life that at principle is the expression of love for God. This brings comfort, great comfort, into the Christian life. The Christian life is not a morbid, sour, depressing thing. It is comforting. It is a wonderful, it is an exciting gift of God. We are always desiring to see how God will reveal more and more of himself to us, of how God will turn the latest attempt of the devil to destroy us on its head and lead us to victory. The life lived to God is a confident, comforted, victorious life. A life separated unto God is life. It's the only life worth living. Let's pray. Father, we thank Thee for the Word and pray for its blessing into our hearts today. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. The Gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.